0: Uh, So this morning, um, I'm going to be starting a series of lessons in uh, Acts chapters 3 through 7. We'll talk more about it in a minute in terms of review, Um, but it was a little over a year ago that I did a series of lessons in Acts chapters 1 and 2, and the title of that series was The Beginning of the End, and the reason for that uh, title was chapter 2, verse 17, where Joel Um, looking forward to what God would do in Jesus's resurrection and ascension, was that in the last days he would pour forth of his spirit. And so we had talked a little bit about Acts 1 and 2 and the importance of seeing the events in those uh, chapters unfold and how significant that is not only for our own faith, but also for sharing our faith and teaching others. Um, But every once in a while I'd like to return back to Acts and just continue Um, to teach through sections of the book. So we're going to be looking at chapter three with the power of the gospel. And I think in in chapters three through seven, we see different angles of the gospel's power at work in these chapters. So we're going to be focusing on that with restoration in chapter three and the gospel's power to restore. So to make sure we have context, again, I want to review again some significant things about the first two chapters of the book of Acts. Um, something I had mentioned uh, again a little over a year ago so it's been quite a while that I've heard Acts chapter 1 and 2 referred to as the hub of the Bible and the hub is by literal definition the hub would be like the center of a wheel the center of like activity or for instance if you're thinking of it more corporately like a business uh, the hub would be like your center of business so it's the center of where everything is happening and that's what Acts chapter 2 is biblically It's hard to overstate just how important these events are. It's the climax of world history. It's the climax and the fulfillment of everything that God had ever been doing since creation and even before that. Everything comes together in Acts chapters 1 and 2. Everything that happens before is leading into it, and everything in some way afterward points back to it. So again, Acts chapter 1 and 2, it's difficult to overstate just how important these chapters are. So just in terms of, uh, just a brief review of some of the sections here. Acts begins in chapter 1. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's been appearing to his disciples, his apostles especially, over a period of 40 days. He's been speaking to them in verse 3 of things concerning the kingdom of God specifically. And in verse 4, he gathers the 12 together, the apostles, well, the 11 at this time. He gathers the 11 together. And he instructs them to wait in Jerusalem until the Father would send the Holy Spirit upon them. In verse 8, Jesus reiterates this. He restates it. But verse 8, Jesus actually gives an outline, not only for the general spread of the gospel, but also of the book of Acts, an outline of the book itself. So verse 8, I'll read this. So this is Jesus speaking to the 11. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So in chapters 1 and 2, we see the disciples going into Jerusalem, waiting there for this promise. In chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, this would be 50 days after the Passover. In chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit come upon them. And they speak in all these different languages that the Jewish people can hear after they're drawn to the area where the disciples were by the sound of a loud rushing wind. And that signals the beginning of this new age that God had been prophesying about from the prophets. And so Joel spoke about the last days when God would send forth of his spirit on mankind. And Peter uses that opportunity to teach about Jesus having ascended, ruling in heaven, being made both Lord and Christ. And this begins the spread of the gospel first in Jerusalem. So in verse 8 there, I've kind of made note of this in my Bible. um, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, that's chapters 1 through 7. And then in chapter 8 through 12, the Christians of Jerusalem are persecuted and begin to scatter in the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then starting in chapter 13, we see the gospel begin to spread to the remotest parts of the earth after that, all the way to the end of the book of Acts, and then obviously exceeding just Acts itself, but just in the history of here we are now, um, far removed from this time frame and far removed from this location, and still um, dedicating ourselves to the Lord today. So in chapter 2, 1 through 13, as was mentioned, the Holy Spirit is poured out with signs that signal something. I like to think about this almost like a fire alarm. When a fire has started in a building, an alarm goes off. And the alarm itself is not the problem that's needing to be addressed, right? It's signaling that something has happened, and you need to respond to to that thing that's happened. Similarly, when the Holy Spirit came and there was this loud sound of wind, you saw the um, tongues of fire on the heads of the disciples. They were speaking in these languages. That is signaling something. And so the signs are not the event itself, but they are pointing to the fact that Jesus is ruling in heaven and this age of time that Joel looked forward to has now come. In Peter's sermon in verses 14 through 16, again, he uses this sign as a platform to preach the first sermon about Jesus risen and ascended to heaven to rule. And the sermon is centered on the fact that Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead So that God could appoint him as both Lord and Christ. And that's how verse 36 ends. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37 through 47, we see about 3,000 people who believed the message. They were cut to the heart. They repented of their sins. And they were baptized in verse 38. They were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, in order to kind of work into chapter 3, I do want to read verse 41 through the end of the chapter, um, because the events seem to happen um, back to back, and so it gives us kind of a context for what we'll see in chapter 3. So chapter 2, verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind. So note this, where this was happening. They were continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So everything up to the end of chapter 2, really everything is ideal. Everything about the way people have responded, not just to the message initially, but how they're continuing in their devotion, it's, it's all ideal. The church is beginning in an ideal condition. But what we're going to see after chapter 3 is the church is going to begin to face a lot of problems. External problems with persecution that starts in chapter 4. Internal problems in chapter 5 and 6. And we're going to see the power of the gospel not only to spread with the teaching, but also to confront these problems and overcome them as well. So everything I would say, despite the persecution and the challenges, everything just keeps happening in such an ideal way all the way through the book of of Acts with the way that um, Christians respond to the problems they're confronted with. So let's look at chapter one through 10 and let's see how Peter and John interact again with this lame man And we'll begin talking about this after reading it again. So chapter three. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. This, by the way, would have been about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to sit down or set down every day at the temple, at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap he stood upright and began to walk and he entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God and all the people saw him walking and praising God and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So Peter publicly heals this lame man. We find out in chapter four this man was over 40 years old when Um, They're taken into custody, even like while they're preaching the sermon in chapter 3. The lame man who was healed, while they're being questioned, is actually standing with them. Um, And it mentions there that this was a miracle on a man who had been over 40 years old. But he was lame from his mother's womb. And so this was something people knew about this man. He was taken every day to the gate of the temple. And I think it's interesting. If he was laid every day at the gate of the temple, how many times Jesus must have passed this man? And how many times the disciples must have passed this man in the past. But now, healing this man at this point is proving things, and again, signaling things, that give Peter a platform to continue to teach these people who had been present for the crucifixion of Jesus, the events of Acts chapter 2, and to repeat and reinforce those same ideas again. So this man, what happens here? He's laid at the temple gates called Beautiful. And when he is laid this particular day, Peter and John pass by. And they fix their gaze on him in verse 4. And I imagine this person maybe had a lot of people passing by him. And so in Savannah, you might see people like standing on corners or on sidewalks, like asking for things, asking for money. And usually they might just kind of look from person to person. So I imagine like he might have looked at Peter and John passingly and then maybe his gaze looked on the next person. But they want his attention. So they say, look at us. And when he looks at them, he's thinking he's going to receive something from them, which he does, and I think more than he anticipated. So you imagine this man whose legs have never been used in his lifetime. You imagine he might have looked dirty, his legs might have just looked like bones and skin just kind of dangling from his waist. Maybe they were very underdeveloped. And so it's a very sad sight. And so Peter tells him, I don't have silver and gold. You know what's interesting about that at the end of chapter 2? Do you remember what we just read was happening? They were selling properties and land, and they were selling houses, and they were laying the, what was sold and the money that was sold or the money gained from the sale and they were giving it to the apostles to distribute to everybody. So either Peter means, I'm not carrying any of that with me right now, or that money was not to be used for that purpose. And so he might mean, I just don't have money for you. But what I do have, I give to you. And so he seizes him by his right hand, and I imagine he just pulls him up, and the man is like leapt off the ground, and he stands up, and it says his ankles and his feet were strengthened. So I imagine maybe his legs, like, visibly, like, looked different. His muscles that were non-existent now are working and able to keep him upright. And the healing is so perfect that in verse 8, it mentions that he was actually walking and leaping, praising God. So obviously, again, this was not only something people could see, but it was obvious that this was a miracle, just like the miracles that Jesus had performed in his ministry. So what is, this, what is this signal? Because again, I think that this isn't just a nice thing that was done, but that what this is doing is like Acts chapter 2, that signs are being demonstrated that help to prove something about the message being carried by Peter and the apostles. So in verse 6, Peter did not just heal this person in a way that would seem to be of his own ability, right? He said, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. We'll see him reference this again in verse 12 when Peter says, why are you looking at us in amazement as if by our own power or piety we've done this thing? So what this proves is if this was done in the name of Jesus, then Jesus is alive. Jesus is not dead. He's not gone. Jesus is alive and his power is working specifically through his representatives these apostles and the apostles then they're carrying a message that holds the weight and the glory of Jesus's character it holds his authority and it holds his power to restore so just like Jesus's miracles ultimately what they did is they signaled something about his teaching and about how we should see ourselves in response to his teaching I think this is the same thing where this signals something about the message that, that is about to be preached and has already been preached. But I think it signals something about the characteristics of who receives the message and who this power is for. We're going to see in chapter four, Lord willing, in a couple weeks. Is this the mess is this a message for the exalted, the powerful, the rich who are unwilling to let go of their greed? This is a pow. this is a message that is for the poor, it's for the helpless. It's for the lowly. And so the apostles are reaching the same people that Jesus focused on on his ministry as well. You know, something about this is just like Acts 2 being based on Joel chapter 2. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 35. That this event, if the Jews were thinking about the Old Testament prophecies. There were some pretty specific things that signaled that this lame man being healed is, again, just like Joel 2, it's pointing to the fulfillment of promises that the prophets had been making and um, leading the Jewish people to be expecting. Isaiah 35, uh, look at verse 3 through 6. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with ancient heart, take courage, fear not. Behold your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God will come but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Araba. The scorched land will become a pool And the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place grass becomes reeds and rushes. You know what's interesting? You know what Peter is going to focus on in his sermon? Restoration and times of refreshing. It's exactly what this prophecy is pointing to, that when these things come to their fulfillment, it's a time of restoration and refreshment that God is bringing. Look at verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads, they will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. One more thing that I think is particularly helpful here. 35 is a conclusion to a larger section in Isaiah. Chapter 36 begins a narrative with Sennacherib, Assyria, Judah. I want you to go back to chapter 32. Again, this is... Um, There's a momentum to things that are being said in Isaiah 35, and it is the conclusion. Look at chapter 32, verse 15. And then look at the language and the time frame being given here for when these things find their fulfillment. Chapter 32, verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And again, look at this image that we saw in chapter 35. And the wilderness becomes a fertile field and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the fertile field and the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. Isn't that incredible? So again, it's not just that this was indiscriminately done just out of sheer kindness, although that would be a part of it. But again, what is this signaling to the Jewish people that the final age that God has been prophesying has come? And just like Joel 2, there are implications that need to be taught and responded to repentantly. Peter does the same thing here. So again, chapter 33, or rather um, 32, I had my reference written down in the notes wrong there. 32, um, the Spirit is poured out upon us. But so in chapter 2, I mentioned this with our series in Acts 1 and 2 that when um, Peter begins teaching, he conveys God's kingdom in a specific way that I think is a pattern for the work of the Holy Spirit, not only in the book of Acts, but even beyond that as well in the epistles. Peter uses the sign to convey God's kingdom by communicating and connecting scripture to convict the heart. And so we see over And over and over again as a pattern in the book of Acts. Peter conveys God's kingdom by communicating and connecting scripture to prove Jesus and to prove his kingdom to convict the heart of the hearer so that they believe and respond. So let's look at chapter 11, or not chapter 11 rather, but verse 11 through 26. Let's read through the rest of the chapter and we'll kind of talk a little bit through this sermon and look at some points that can be made from it as well. Um, so, back in Acts chapter 3, verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us? As if by our own power or piety we made him walk. We had made him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And It will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So, one of the main things about this sermon is we see Peter again giving evidence from Scripture to prove Jesus' identity and to convict the audience to believe and repent. Um, verse 16, or rather, verse 18, the things that God announced beforehand by the mouth of all of his prophets, he's fulfilled. Verse 21, uh, the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. And then verse 24, And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. So this is something that they should all be extremely familiar with. It's the thing that they were, as a culture, most expecting and anticipating to come. So there's a few things that I want to point out here, though, that I think can help us relate to this message. The glory of Jesus' identity and his resurrection, so now like who they're able to more clearly understand Jesus to be, what that does as it's defined not only by his resurrection as an event, but also in scripture, what that does is it magnifies the injustice and the horror and the humiliation of Jesus' death when he was crucified. And Peter's not going to let the audience just escape that. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, you know, the sign itself, the visible thing that happened, it made people amazed. It was very exciting, right? But the message was very heavy and solemn. And so there was this amazement that the crowds had, but Peter in chapter 2 pulls them in and says, but what this is signaling isn't just something exciting, This means that you are guilty. And so the same thing sets up this lesson in verse 11 of chapter 3. The man was there with Peter and John. The people are amazed and this is exciting. But then Peter pulls them in and says, well, this signals your guilt. So look back in verse 13. What were they guilty of? So the audience he's teaching here, these are Jews who in Acts chapter 2 They didn't believe. They weren't baptized yet. And so he tells them that they are guilty of disowning and giving up Jesus, God's servant that was glorified, even after Pilate had decided to release him. And then in verse 14 and 15, there's this irony. They asked for a murderer and put to death the prince of life, um, whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. So verse 17 He says that they acted in ignorance here. And so all of these things being true, right? They crucified Jesus. They disowned him. They became this riotous crowd that were calling for his crucifixion, even when Pilate had decided to release Jesus and his innocence. Did their ignorance excuse them or did it convict them? So I want you to think about a situation and this is going to be like a much more minor situation. But again, just to kind of illustrate, does ignorance excuse in a situation like this? I want you to imagine that somebody after leaving a bar, let's say they're very drunk, they get in a car and they begin driving 90 miles an hour, and they blow by a neighborhood road where the speed limit's 30, there's a cop car there, he begins trailing them. He sees they're swerving around and keeping speed with them, staying behind them. He sees that they're passing sign after sign that says the speed limit. He even passes cop cars with their lights on who have pulled over other people, and he's just, he's not stopping. Cop car eventually pulls him over, turns his lights on, the person pulls over. And the cop approaches him to ask him about what he's doing and why he's going so fast. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't notice. He smells alcohol on his breath and asks him to get out of the car, and as the situation goes on, he's arrested. In a situation like that, first of all, does the reason for ignorance excuse the person? I think it can be difficult for us to comprehend the animosity and the horror of when Jesus died on the cross. This isn't blowing past speed limit signs. This is, you should have known, right, so not only does he say you should have known, but he, then he quotes all of these prophets. He says, all the prophets talked about this, so they should have known. So why didn't they? Why didn't they? Is it an excusable reason? The fact that they were ignorant makes it worse. And you imagine when the cop sees that person blowing past the stop signs, he had every reason to see it and was being deliberately ignorant in the matter. So just because they were ignorant, Peter's not saying, well, I mean, you were ignorant, so it's not really like you did anything all that bad. I mean, God raised him from the dead anyway, right? But again, you imagine as Peter would pull them back to the scene, as they're seeing Jesus' body ripped to shreds in the most brutal and disgusting ways, being mocked. And you imagine you'd be standing there and maybe you were one of those people laughing and sneering as you see it all happen and peter is bringing you back we do ourselves a disservice when we disassociate ourselves from what peter was telling this audience if you're like me you can really struggle with well i didn't see it i wasn't there i I struggle with really feeling very personal about this and seeing it like i'm sure they would have seen it being convicted like they would have been convicted But if we see Jesus' death as a testimony of what it looks like to push God's rule out of our lives and to strive to have liberty from God and to choose a life independent from God and sin instead of living for God, that's the cross. And so, what this audience had to deal with, ultimately, God wants us to see ourselves in the same situation so that we can gain the same conviction and then have the same zeal. So their ignorance didn't mean that they were excused. No, it meant, rather, they really needed to learn. And they needed to believe what they were being told. And they needed to repent of what they had done. That's what their ignorance meant. You know, so we can ask a lot of questions, I think, at times. Well, what about so-and-so in some faraway place? Ignorance... Does not excuse us in God's sight. It means we need to learn. It means we need to be taught. And it means that there is an urgency to learning what we've done and believing the message. One more illustration um, relationally. This is something that I think is very true in marriage. Um, But have you ever done something if you are someone who's married? Where you actually hurt your spouse but you weren't aware of it? Or you hurt them and to you it was something, well, I don't really see the big deal, but it genuinely really hurt the other person, right? And so in situations like that, it's the sin or the or the relational problem that's created isn't measured by the person who doesn't care and doesn't see it. The measure of the problem is by the person who's been offended. So for God to say, look, you may have your own thoughts about sin and, you know, your own callousness and understanding of it that doesn't motivate you to make any change. But that's, again, it's why we need to learn God's perspective. God gets to define the problem. He gets to define the seriousness of the problem and how we ought to respond to that problem. And what this should do is it should make us feel just horrified. And it should be shocking how incredibly blinding and heart-hardening sin is. Again, the fact that they were ignorant of something that should have been so clear, Jesus is called the Holy and Righteous One. Jesus lived his life publicly, yet blamelessly. And Jesus spent himself performing kind miracles, healing the sick, restoring the blind, casting out demons. And so to see Jesus living that way, and yet for his life to end by such horrible injustice, what does that say about how blinding sin is? about how much it calluses the conscience, that there would be no effect for this audience even still up to this point. And so we need to see sin as it's measured and defined by God, but we also need to see repentance in that way too. There's some really incredible images here of repentance. So look at verse 19. So Peter tells them, repent and return. So I think it's amazing that, first of all, It's not a hopeless message. He's not just browbeating them for what they've done. The amazing thing about what God gives us access to, he says, if you're not willing to believe it, you will lose everything. But if you're just willing to accept it, I'll give you everything. So it's simple. Repent and return that your sins may be wiped away. Other translations will say blotted out in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. So repentance is not just seen as a change of loyalty, although that is fundamentally what it is. That repentance is not just I'm changing some things in my life. Like let's say I see that, well, I have a problem with lying, right? Biblical repentance wouldn't just be changing that one behavior, that one bad habit or sinful habit. Repentance is a radical change in loyalty, Not just outward loyalty with outward obedience, but inward loyalty with my thoughts, my attitude. But repentance even more than that, it's freedom from bondage to self-destruction. I've known many brethren who have come out of severe drug addiction. And I remember one time it was in Mississippi. I visited a brother in Christ who preaches for a church in Mississippi. And a member of the church there was in a rehabilitation facility. And he was someone where he had really lost himself to drug addiction in his past. Why did that person need to be restored? Obviously, they were doing things that were destroying their life, that were sinful. But they needed to be freed from self-destructive habits that were destroying their life, their ability to have any freedom in their life from drug addiction, any relationship in their life that wasn't related to drug addiction. And they needed to be restored because their life beyond just actions was in a total self-destructive cycle and spiral. That's what sin is. And so God is confronting us with the fact that we need to repent because outside of our relationship with God and our loyalty to God, Satan has us stuck ignorantly in cycles of self-destruction. And again, how shocking is it that sin would be so powerful that we would be ignorant of those things and be callous to them, right? Which, is, again, is exactly how someone becomes in something like cycles of drug addiction. And so God isn't just trying to reign and rule and dominate our decisions. We need to repent so that times of refreshing may come. And that he would be able to restore us like the images that we see in Isaiah. So again, repentance, God wants us to see that not just as a change in loyalty, but that it's also a change of restoration, that God can finally work in our lives to do something meaningful and productive with our lives and liberate us and free us from things that are just destroying us in ignorance. So lastly, verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. How is Jesus a prophet like Moses in this way? What did God do with Moses for Israel? Moses led God's people from where? From cruel bondage and slavery in Egypt. He took them out of a kingdom where they were being abused, where they, were being, they weren't being cared for, And they were being put to work in a way that was to get them to not think about what God said about delivering them into a a different land. Moses delivered the people as a leader out of a kingdom of bondage into a kingdom of freedom in relationship with God and covenant with God. Moses was an intercessor. He interceded, he stood between God and the people so that they could receive mercy as Jesus intercedes for us. Moses was a lawgiver. Moses was God's mouthpiece and so you see that emphasized in verse 22 and 23 to him you shall give heed to everything he says to you and it will be that every soul that does not give heed to that prophet shall be utterly destroyed among the people. So Moses when he was teaching the people was it just his own word? Was it just things that he was trying to advise the people so that they could live better lives? Joseph... Moses was speaking on direct behalf of God himself. And so to disobey Moses was to disobey God and his authority himself. The same way Jesus speaks by God's direct authority. Peter, by extension, was speaking by Jesus' authority. And so Peter's message, and for us, the message we read in scripture, contains the power of God to redirect us, enlighten us, they give us restoration and hope with God. And that's the message that we not only need to continue to abide in and believe with hope, with the joy of the salvation that God has promised, but to go out to share with others as we see the needs that other, others have as well. So that's where we'll stop for this morning. And again, in a couple of weeks, we'll see how this message in chapter four, even while they were teaching the people and speaking, the Jewish leaders come and arrest them, and we'll see how they handle that with boldness. But if you're here this morning, and you have not embraced the gospel, there is no reason to stay in the world and there is every reason to let God win your life and your loyalty to adopt you into his family. Without God, we lose everything. With him, we gain more than we can imagine. Just like what was pictured at the beginning of the chapter, without God, to say the least, we are lame. We're immovable. But with God, there is a restoration beyond what we could possibly imagine in this life. So I'd appeal to you to consider what God is offering in his son, what Christ has done to pardon and blot away our sins. If there's anything else we can do for you this morning, this is a good time to bring those things forward before the church as we stand and sing our invitation song.